everybody, this is Keach Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and I have with me a good friend of mine that I've known for a long time, Scotty Simpson. Hey, what's happening? Keach, so Um, glad to be here, buddy. I love you. So, Scotty Simpson, you are a bass player extraordinaire. Oh, well, thanks. We're from the same area. We're from Dallas, Texas. Absolutely. So, were you ever in Stallion, the band Stallion? That's why I remember you. Absolutely. I was going crazy in my mind thinking, like, what band was he in in Dallas that I remember so well? Yeah, I was in Stallion for a long time, and then I joined another one called El Dorado that that did pretty well down there. Yeah, El Dorado. But Stallion was the big one, definitely. Yeah. It's funny, I I was in, uh, I was at the Opry about two months ago, and Trace Adkins was there. And I went up to him and I said, hey, buy you. Because that was his yeah, band was his back band, then, right? right? I said, hey, buy you. And he yeah. looked at me. And I go, I'm Stallion. And he goes, yeah. Stallion. Oh. Yeah. So then we had a big talk. And we talked about that whole circuit back then, about Canyon and all that. Yeah, and he was like, right. yeah. man, didn't we hate Canyon? And, <laughs> and it was like, yeah, we did. And it's like, I said, they are the sweetest guys on the planet. But they had a bus. We did. Y'all had, we had a, a bus, bus when none of the rest and of us did. We were so jealous. That was making it back then. If you got finally made it to a bus... Right. You're in, man. You're in. It's, yeah. You're a star. But I tell you, that bus, I t- <laughs> we had, we had it's so many stories I could tell you about that bus, about getting stuck, getting broken down, because it was an old eagle. An right. Old I, re- eagle. I remember it. And the paint job on the back. You don't ever, as an artist, put your name on the bus. Back then, I guess you, hey, you know, we were... We right. were trying to be somewhere. We right. were trying to be somebody. Right. So we put right. the name on there like Canyon. It's like a billboard. And then, of course, nowadays you don't ever do that because people would be bugging you from. Some do, some don't, you know. Uh, Travis, when I was playing with Travis Tritt, the only thing on his entire bus that would let you know it was Travis Tritt bus was the where the uh, they would slide in a tongue in the back. You know, like if they were going to put a tongue on to pull a trailer okay, in the right, back, yeah. there's that little hitch thing that's okay. about the size, a little <laughs> bit bigger than, say, a wallet. Okay. It said Travis Tritt that's on square. it. Oh, you're kidding Absolutely me. nothing else on the bus. You would never know who it was. But oh, that so, one so when little, you weren't pulling a trailer, there's that cap, that, that end that cap, cap that sort the, of the keeps it The cap that would go on there, and it <laughs> said Travis Tritt right in that little bitty spot. And nobody said, would pull up right behind you real close, and what is what yeah, they doing? Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, uh, you know, playing with the Oak Ridge Boys now, they're from the gospel world where you put your name on everything. Yeah, you want front, everybody. To front play. to back, yeah. trailer front to back, Oak Ridge Boys, <laughs> pictures, Yeah, uh, up in the dash of, of the thing. Absolutely. <laughs> like the, if the old marquee that used to be above the driver, you know, the, that glass yeah. marquee uh-huh. up oh, there. Yeah. Every bit of it. And yeah. where I prefer the other, where you're more discreet. Yeah, you know. yeah. So you guys with the Oak Ridge Boys now, you're with the Oak Ridge Boys. Um, we're going to talk in a little bit about some of the other artists you play with, like Travis mm-hmm. Tritt and some other people. But right. um, uh, So the Oaks now, um, I hope it's okay if I call them the Oaks. Absolutely. The Oaks? That's, that's what, actually what they prefer. The Oaks? It seems ridiculous calling the Oak Ridge Boys all the time. I, I know, right, the Oak Ridge Boys. We've always the Oaks. It sounds so 70s, you know. Like, it re- well, they are 70s. Yeah, they are 70s. Uh, yeah. Literally and chronologically yes. you know, um, I used to work out with our train my trainer used to train Dwayne yes the, you know with with the Oaks and um, he was telling me one time this was probably back in 2015 or something like that or 12 I can't remember somewhere around there he said that I asked him how they were doing you know like on the road just kind of casual mm-hmm. conversation and he said I tell you you know he said this year meaning like back back in 2012 or Mm-hmm. 13, whatever it was. Um, he said, this year has been our busiest year other than the Elvira days. Right, and right, right. I, and he kind of had to explain that back when Elvira came out, they were like rock stars, man. They, they were like, they had groupies and like like uh, people following, and like they were like Van Halen or something. Absolutely. They were, they got gigantic. They made this yeah. this big jump from kind of the country gospel all the way over into pop. Yeah. That song was such a, a freak yeah. of a song. 
that uh, it, it sent them into another stratosphere. Right. Now, what did, what before Elvira, what did they have? I'm just going to we'll talk about you, mm-hmm. your career, well, but I just I'm, want to I be love, curious. Before Elvira, what what would you have known them for? Uh, y'all Come Back Saloon, maybe? Okay, yeah, but it was uh, in the country genre, basically. Definitely country, yeah. yeah. They The group actually started in about the 40s. Obviously, obviously, oh, these guys were no guys, part yeah. of it. At that time, I think they were called the uh, Clodhoppers or something that, thank God, they changed. <laughs> the Clodhoppers. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd have played for them if they I were know, called right, the Clodhoppers. The Clodhoppers yeah. but, uh, and they got a gig going up to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, right. where, the, uh, where they make the bombs or whatever it is. There's an, an arsenal really? armory thing there. So they would go and play the armory on Saturday nights in Oak Ridge. Really? So a club they or something? Or a... uh, on the base. There's oh, like a, okay. a military... I, I can't. See. They got something to do with bombs or something Yeah, you'd up have there. to kind of put a fence around that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's like a no entrance, no yeah. type thing. But they would go up there and do Saturday nights. So eventually they became the Oak Ridge Boys because of going to, up to Oak Ridge uh, up, and, and, and doing so the things. And they coined it and yeah. just said, let's just call ourselves that. Let's, let's right. dump the clodhoppers. And... Thank God. I couldn't <laughs> imagine being a clodhopper. Yeah, right. Yeah, that'd be a little embarrassing. Oaks. Wow. No offense um, to clodhoppers out there. <laughs> yeah, man. And in the early 80s. 80, 90, when, when the urban cowboy, what I call the urban cowboy craze. That's what I, made me and you. I, that's true, because I remember a time when radio stations, pop stations, you know, mm-hmm. everything was kind of all, they did have some AM sort of like country, country stations that played the hardcore country right. stuff. But most of the pop stations played country acts like Dolly, mm-hmm. Kenny Rogers, right. people like that. Uh, Charlie Daniels, th- mm-hmm. they were that was just a pop radio. They would just play this. I was fixing to things. say, yeah, all of those yeah. all of those artists had a foot in pop. Yeah, right. You know, and on your your typical like KVIL and, and mm-hmm. would play like a rock song or a pop song, and it'd be like you know maybe Michael, not Michael Jack, well maybe the Jackson Five, and then it would be like a, a country song like Dolly Parton or mm-hmm. Kenny Rogers, you know, Kenny Rogers his, or something uh, like that. Um, yeah, and then when the from my memory when. The Urban Cowboy movie, The Urban Cowboy came out in 1980. Then all of a sudden you started seeing FM country stations, like Just Country, starting to – now there might have been some before, but they started going crazy. Absolutely. Well, it was the first time that, that country was ever taken off of the hay bales and the yeah. wagon wheel kind yeah. of thing. And all of a sudden it's mainstream. You got John Travolta. You got yeah. – and everybody from – Washington to New York City was going out and buying cowboy hats and right. putting on boots and going to the clubs, which really behooved you and I because yeah. I, I'm not sure how old you are. I'm I'm 57. So, I'm 60. So, so yeah. I was learning to play, you know, uh, pretty much from about 75 is where I started kind of getting the hang of it a little bit. And then at, at 1980, I was a rocker up to that point, I should yeah, say, you right, know, and right. then, what a great era for rock. You know, Van Halen, know, Boston, right. Foreigner, 77 Hart. is my favorite year for music. And Absolutely. That, that whole little five from 75 to 80. Right. Oh, I don't yeah. even go to 81 because you right. had, you had like I say, you had Boston, you had Van Halen, you had Hart, Foreigner, mm-hmm. and then you get to 1980 and you got ACDC, Back in Black. And this know? is not even talking about the disco era that, that was happening during that whole time absolutely you know, 76 to about 80 you know yeah absolutely Disco and it was, was it was its own well. thing and you know what in those days it was so popular that eventually everybody turned their nose up at it but if you go back and listen to it now it still stands up yeah it's right. incredible music you yeah. know but absolutely uh, 1980 when urban cowboy hit and all of a sudden it was mainstream and there's country music everywhere yeah 
that you and I jumped on the boat, man. Because, yeah. I mean, Dallas went from little bitty podunk country clubs mm-hmm. to the big boy clubs, you know, yeah. to 2,000 people. In one them. way I knew that it was a thing was because KPLX used to be easy listening. Do you remember this? Yes. In 79, yes. it was like easy listening, like KPLX, KPLX, mm-hmm. easy listening. To all of a sudden, now it's just country, KPLX. Right. All your country favorites. And I was just like, what? Right. And KSCS. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, what a wonderful time. We were lucky to get in on it. And really, honestly, before that, I wasn't a fan of country that much. Now now that I'm older and I go back and look at it through the proper perspective, yeah. I'm amazed by it. But at the time, it seemed hokey to me. And, yeah. and the urban cowboy stuff seemed to be the perfect bridge between that uh, – persona that you would picture when you think country music you don't the think cowboy of those hat and the cowboy things. hat and the nudie suits yeah, and uh, right. all that stuff <laughs> and all of a sudden it was it changed you know and right at our perfect time for you and i to yeah. jump in there and our biggest bonus i think was in 1980 right around there that everybody jumped on it at the same time and the quality of the bands that you and i were yeah not only in but our circuit yeah you know, if we go back and think about that, think who think who was on that Texas Texas Oklahoma our, circuit with there's us. our horn section. Yeah, <laughs> the band cave. Yeah, but think and of the, who think of uh, just think back on that circus. Yeah, Stallion. You know. Yeah. Right. And uh, you guys, Canyon. Yeah. Ty Herndon. Yeah. There was a lot of Trace us. Atkins. Trace Atkins. Toby Keith. Around. Toby Keith. We all played the same. Little Texas. We spilled the know? same blood and the same mud, as they say. Absolutely. <laughs> and the competition was high, but it was a friendly high. Yeah. You know, yeah. to where we all wished the best for each other. And when one one guy would make it, you know, oh, my God, Toby got signed. Yeah. You know, wow, that means there's hope for everybody or yeah. whoever got signed first. I really can't remember. And I think wasn't there a lot of trading around of musicians like some some of you were playing with like Steve Stewart and then somebody they'd be with Stallion and then they would be they would go and join this other thing. And that other person would like musical chairs. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But yeah. the competition was so strong at that point that i just assumed it was like that all over the united states and right. it really wasn't right. i mean we were in a hotbed of it yeah, where it right. was like dallas texas the, the clubs and the dallas so many dallas houston clubs, yeah. now in, in houston with the uh, jim collins and oh, right. yeah. remember the uh the shop right remember that band yeah right all of that kind of stuff it was just the perfect time for you yeah. and i to be inspired now, all of us that were down there now are here in nashville are now. here We've all migrated are here yeah. and the ones that just stuck with it the whole time and didn't yeah. give up have made it yeah. you know have made it uh, far beyond their uh, wildest dreams i was speaking about jim collins you know you remember yeah. jim uh, i was just seeing where he had a post from where he went in the texas country music hall of fame songwriters hall of wow. fame you know yeah and uh it's so cool that whenever people that you're contemporaries with make it you're like well hell if they can do it yeah i know them you know i guess yeah. i can do it right. and you have somebody on the other side of the fence to pull you over to yeah. to say let me help you a little bit right. let me yeah. let me guide you this way or that way and it's a, a wonderful thing definitely yeah. yeah so i want to go back to when you were just a boy and i had read somewhere that you your all your brothers are were musicians i have a, a single brother that's yeah. a 10 years oh, older a, than me a brother mm-hmm. and then you were sort of dragged into a sort of a band situation and uh, and how did you gravitate toward bass tell tell us that story well uh like you said i did have a brother that was 10 years older than me and he really wasn't a musician musician but he could play guitar a little bit yeah. enough to show me a little bit and everybody wants to be like their big brother right. so i was hooked on trying to 
figure it out a little bit, you know. And right around then, that urban cowboy thing came mm-hmm. along. And so my brother thought, well, hell, I play good enough to be in a band, you know, so let's put a band together. But we were all guitar players. And uh, it's like, well, somebody's got to play bass. <laughs> and uh, we kind of went around the room, and uh, he had a friend who had a a beetle bass, you know, the yeah. violin shape old. Okay, it was yeah. a piece of junk. Paul McCartney's I, old thing. I thought that thing was so cool. So whenever he, he brought it one day for us to look at it, and I jumped on it. I just thought it was incredible. And from then on, I was hooked. It was like a love affair just started right then. That it epiphany. really was. It really was. You know, because it, it's simplistic in a way, but in a way it's really the devil's in the details right i mean yeah. a lot of people can play them but to really play them effectively and emotionally yeah. is uh an exercise in minimalism right yeah i like to think of it as the perfect mix between rhythm and and melody right because it's, it's the bridge it really yeah. is a rhythm instrument it can be it can be a very rhythmic in- instrument absolutely anytime I'm, I'm teaching anybody to play a little bit my uh, one of my big emphasis is before you even worry about your left hand on a song as far as notes and all that yeah get your right hand and just thump out that rhythm on those strings if it's one string or two strings or whatever yeah get that drum beat down in your right hand thinking that way yeah. and then worry about the notes on the other end yeah that's true because i mean think about it you could pl- start a whole song or have a whole song with just bass going a bass right. riff and you're like oh okay yeah i get that i see where the the, right. The feel is, yeah. Right, and I kind of think the theory on that kind of stuff is you play a simple lick as many times as it takes for you think you to think that the audience gets it. You know, if you're playing, dum, 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 dum. well, after about ten times of doing that, yeah. the audience can they know say, they know they're right <laughs> along with you. And uh, it, like I say, it's an exercise in simplicity. Yeah, it really is. It's true. So you. Uh, Got to the base, and you, uh, I also had read where you said that you 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 would listen to records and like back up the needle. And of course, this oh my is gosh, technology yeah. back it, the it's it's so back the needle and listen to every little tiny detail and try and nail it and just agonize over it, you yeah. know. And I think there was there's a certain charm to that because now, no matter what it is, you go on YouTube and you look at somebody play it. Where back then you were moving that needle back and you listening to, to it, their fingers yeah. have to just pick it out of the air and figure out your version of it. I always like to use the uh, story of uh, the band Eldorado that I was playing in right after Stallion. Right. There was a guitar player there that was from uh, New Mexico. His name was Ron DeShazo. And so we had a country band and we hired him in and he was the most phenomenal player. He, he just played with uh, a, like a Strat type thing with a whammy bar. But him being so isolated from Nashville he didn't know anything about B-bender guitars or any of that bender type stuff. Yeah, right. So he figured out his way to do it. He could make it sound identical to it without even being remotely... Just by bending the string with his fingers or something? That or and the, the whammy bar and oh, the way yeah, he'd okay. bend his strings. But he could make it sound identical. But if you watched him and whoever played it originally play it, completely different. Yeah. I mean, and that was the charm of just listening rather than watching, you know? And uh, right around then, like I say, my brother played a little bit. The Urban Cowboy thing we hit, we started. So when I was, I would say I was probably a freshman in high school, we put a band together, and my parents let him be my guardian. We'd go play VFWs on the weekend and bars and stuff and all that stuff. So I got steeped in it really early, and I was playing with guys that 
were at least 10 years older than me because I was yeah. a freshman in high school, you know. Right. And that raises your bar, too. If you're in a band with a bunch of people that are better than you, you just yeah. naturally you, have to. you naturally catch up. Yeah. 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 So that's uh, – Playing with better golfers, right? You want to play better golf? That's basically yeah. – yeah. Yeah, that's basically what I did. And uh, in high school, while I was playing in those weekend bands, you know, you never think you're worth a crap. I mean, you're always insecure about what you do. And so I thought, man, I could never be in, like, a big band. So – I got a job at a sound company working, you know, evenings, weekends, whatever, doing yeah. stuff. And uh, we would go out one weekend and set up a rig for Eric Johnson. And the next weekend, it would be Stevie Ray Vaughan. And the next oh. weekend, it'd be this guy and that guy. And I thought, I'll never be like that. <laughs> so I'll I'll become a, a studio engineer. I thought, well, I could do that because yeah. I'm not a good enough player to do any <laughs> of that other stuff. So studio engineer. So flash forward. I get the job with Stallion, who was already established. They've yeah. they lasted almost 20 years total. Do they have any originals, uh, or was they it do? All? They have a, a few albums. Yeah, yeah okay, uh, really I good albums. Some songs. Yeah, but they have been one of those acts that's the name has carried on longer than just about any individual member. There were one right. or two that were there for the duration. Yeah. So I ended up getting a, a gig mixing those guys because they played five or six nights a week. So I would be their sound guy, and. Uh, their bass player, he was kind of an eclectic dude, you know. Which one, David Norris? No, this was oh. the David uh, came in after me. This oh, after was you. Okay. this was a guy named Morris Rose. Okay. That played first, and then there was another guy named Wendell Eads. Well, so I they knew that I played just a little bit. Well, there was one night we were playing up in uh, I would say maybe Denton or someplace yeah. like that. Calhoun's or whatever. Uh, 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 somewhere up there, yeah. and uh, the bass player didn't make it. So, I took the bass and I sat at the mixing console and plugged in and I played bass from the mixing console. Just direct, just plug in direct. Yeah, I played bass from the mixing console and at the end of the night they're like, that's really pretty good. (laughs) They said, you sing? Yeah. So, I sang some with them. Next thing you know, I'm in the band. So, I got to skip (laughs) from the cellar to the top of the heap all in one thing just by happenstance. Wow. And then once you get in that... You really have to catch up, yeah. you know, because those guys were established, the best yeah. players in town, you know. And so, uh, I, man, I was in heaven. I never felt more successful than I did getting that gig, even yeah. even being since, ever since. And I've gotten some pretty pretty good ones along the way. Yeah. So when you when you were named the bass player finally, did you sort of put your hands together and go, okay, all right, now I'm going to learn all these parts perfect, and I'm going to just like you did with the needle. Well, and well you know, actually, agonize the over whole me. time I was mixing them, I was taking notes, you, man. Yes, I was, of I was thinking. Yeah. Actually, it was. Yeah, I yeah. may have even willed that guy into not showing up because <laughs> I thought, if this guy ever drops out, I'm ready. I knew the set yeah, that list. Night he was I tied knew. up. He was, he was, he was tied up and gagged somewhere <laughs> in the closet. I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> he might have been, but I was so ready that uh, whenever the situation came up, I jumped on it, and I've been mixing them for a while, so I knew the stuff yeah. well enough to knew all the songs, knew really all the get lines. through it, you know. You were probably and playing bass in your mind while you were absolutely, mixing them. Or absolutely, yeah. and going home and getting in my bedroom and doing like we were talking, getting yeah. the records and getting the radio or back then cassettes and yeah. backing them up, mm-hmm. play, back up, back up, back up, yeah. and until you could finally get to where you could turn your volume off yeah. And play along, and your mind couldn't just figure out if you were hearing you or them, yeah. you know, on this record. And right. that's when you go, I think I think I got that one. Yeah. The way I used to wor- work up songs was I would have a cassette of the song, and then I'd have to learn it. So I would 
I would hit play, put the headphones on, play it until I didn't know what I was doing. And then I would stop right then, right. back it up all the way to the beginning, play it all the intro, the first verse, whatever, until I got to the part that I wasn't sure of. And I just kept doing that over and over, and I'd get a little further and a little further. Right. So by the time I actually got to the end of the song, the, the intro and the first verse was, was yeah, I played it so many times. Old hat, That was yes. the best way for me to learn instead of charting it or whatever yeah i I wasn't even capable of charting back then it had to be memory i didn't know anything about a number system or anything and to this day i've been playing well i'm 57 so i've been playing 47 years yeah i still can't read a note of notational music you and i did a session recently together Mm -hmm. and you had your own sort of shorthand that you'd written down your own little chart well because we had a numbers chart for everybody and you you just started making your own notes and the main reason i do that uh first of all is it helps me understand it better right. and second yeah. of all is my vision isn't great and a lot of guys when they write those charts write those tiny numbers and <laughs> being a bass player you don't need all of that extra information that piano and yeah. guitar does you don't need all, all those extensions on there mm-hmm. yeah. you know the flat nine foot all you need is yeah this yeah right. it's good to understand what those extensions mean and the rest of it uh, which comes along but uh yeah if i get in there and there's just too much information crammed in a small space my vision is bad enough that especially while we're playing i can sit yeah. and read it but <laughs> while we're playing you know you kind of glance across the room i look over at you and then i yeah. look back down and i can't find my spot so <laughs> yeah. i like to make them really big really wide yeah which charts. is like little squares or something like that, I think. I was using, a, there's a an app. It's only for iPad, unfortunately. I but see. it's the best charting pa- uh, app I've ever, it's called One Chart. The numeral one. One. Chart. Number one. Like a number one chart. Yes. Okay. And uh, it's incredible. Really? Incredible. You, you go in, you, you chart just like a number chart. Do you just you, play the song and it automatically does it? Or, no, or no, I mean, you, actually... you do it. I see. You type it in there. But you can... Uh, it has all of the notations that you would need to write a number chart. You know, it has yeah. diamonds, it has Doritos, it has, uh, you know, quarter notes, half notes, rests, all of that stuff. Yeah. That it has really, the language, basically. It like has you the language, have. and you can edit it, and there's a button on there to where if I wrote a song out and we knew it was absolutely going to be in G mm-hmm. and somebody needed a chart that doesn't really read the numbers that well, you can hit a button on there and it'll take it from numbers to letters oh, where it'll really? go from like ones and fours and fives to G's and C's and D's. Wow. Like that's awesome. Immediately. Yeah. I, I recommend it for everybody. That's amazing. And, and it if you really, change key, you can just like hit the new key and it's all done. Right. Well, that's the advantages to doing numbers is right. because no matter what key it's in, it One doesn't is the, matter. Is the whatever this key is. In. It doesn't matter. I learned that lesson a hard way. I uh, was doing some recording with some guys that were way better than me when I first came to Nashville. And, uh, so I, I was going to write out the charts because it was my friend that was doing the recording. So the bunch of guys better than me. So I'm, I'll write the charts out. So I thought I was so good. I wrote G and C and <laughs> D. Like, what is this? Where's and, the numbers? And F. <laughs> and we got there. And some of them were okay with it. But like an acoustic player, mm-hmm. they can't use them because yeah. they capo up. Get right. So, so their G shape in yeah. their hand is not a G anymore. Right. It's an A, yeah. it's a B, it's a C, it's a whatever. So they need the one, four, five. They need whatever. the one, four, five yeah. so they can do their thing. Because if you're saying G, for them to play it right, they, they have, have to, to say, well, they'll say the G shape is really a D shape <laughs> yeah. where I'm at. Yeah. So 
it embarrassed me. It would me. take away from their playing because they have to make that extra step to transport, to think about it too much. Absolutely. Yeah. And these guys do it all day long every day. So they, you know, if yeah. you want to get the best out of them, you put what they're used to in front of them. Right. Yeah. You know, so I learned that lesson really quick. And it comes in handy if you go to a, a whole lot of uh, trouble writing out the perfect chart in B flat and E flat and F and all that stuff. And then you get there and they want to change keys. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you're, uh, yeah. your only alternative is to rewrite it, yeah. you know. And you may rewrite it in A, and then they go, maybe G's better. Yeah. So you're going to rewrite yeah. it again. Yeah, right again. Yeah. Where if it's a number, it doesn't matter where they start or where they end. Yeah. You know, you can go with it. Just to, and you can take your pencil, which usually when you do a session in Nashville, you get your chart, your number chart, and a pencil. And you go in your little booth or whatever, and then when they mm-hmm. make changes on the fly – Right. Hey, let's change that bridge uh, to a double bridge, and then right. we'll just bring right. that chorus back in. You just take your pencil and yeah, and that's that was another reason that I liked making those big wide charts. Simplistic for me yeah. with all of that inf- out that information is because there's so much room to write in, not yeah. just a notational thing, but you can write in in between two of the numbers. You know, slow down here, kick here, yeah. build here, you yeah. build here, stop after this, yeah. whatever. So, so I have a I have a base question. It's probably a a ridiculously stupid question but I was thinking about it the other day listening to a song and it was a country song and it was one of those where it's start the and I was listening to the bass specifically and the bass was kind of like boom 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 and then the next verse was like started out boom boom and it went the other way like what as a bass player and you're doing a session or whatever that something that hasn't been recorded before what makes what informs you and makes you say I'm going to start with that first and then I'm going to go up and the next one I'm going to go up and then down like what makes you yeah well it really depends on the song and uh, where the song gets soft or or loud type things you know because there is a kind of a Nashville formula that if your listeners kind of start listening to songs they'll notice it happens a whole lot usually they'll come in with a It'll either be a super soft intro or it'll be a full intro. And then when they get to the first verse, boom, everybody drops out and it's right. acoustic or right. it gets really small there. Yeah. And you just let everything ring and they set up that first yeah. verse. And then the second verse, you come in. And depending on if you want to come in with a, a big, big foot or if you want to come in like yeah. a tap on the shoulder, you so can either the what big foot. If you play on Right. The big points, foot would yeah. be hit a big old bottom yeah. low. Yeah. Or if, if the song calls for something like that. Yeah. But if you're coming in soft, like you're tapping somebody on the shoulder, you start up high and just yeah. kind of ease your way into yeah. it. Then when you get to the chorus, it naturally makes it bigger when you go low. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. and at the end of the chorus, if it's a little sensitive verse after that, then you may go back up. Or if it's a, a verse that was set up by that chorus to where now the power is in the song, then you, you stay down in that bottom area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, is is it fun for you to come up with um, kind of like figures, like kind of like Carol Carol K? Yes, Carol K, right? Yes, that, Carol that used K. To do that. Yes, she would come yes. up with like these kind of. Uh, she was the one that kind of came up with that whole samba feel, that boom. Yeah, she's she's really incredible. You wouldn't think that a a little old lady with horn rimmed glasses could have played on all of that, right? All of that stuff so effectively. And, and what's so cool, you know, it is so cool. And she was, she is a master. She's a master reader, like yeah. a notational reader. And back then, I don't think there was any number system, mm-hmm. you know, and that, yeah. that happened in Nashville years later. So back then it is notational music. So she would read that notation and then 
when they play it the next time, she'd add a little bit more to it. And if there was a spot, like in a Ray Charles song or something that she's yeah. playing on, then she would uh, jazz it up a little bit because yeah. those composers are writing so many parts that they're not really thinking of funking up your part for you. And really, yeah. the funkiness of it and the feel of it is something you can't write on a sheet anyway. That's true. You know, yeah. you can give the play with it. You can give the guideposts, but you can't say, you know, yeah, funk it up just a little bit right and here. Sometimes by bit. accident, there's like little serendipity. That by accident, a lot of it. Uh, the more than the longer I play and the longer I play, sometimes it's not even notes that you're playing. It's just you thump the string, yeah. you know, just to, for a percuss- percussive. It doesn't yeah. have to be a note. And uh, those little things like that make all the difference. Yeah. And uh, as a bass player, you really have to be cognizant of – think of the way you would sing whatever you're going to play. Like if, if it's a song, does it start off blank or does it start off boom or foom, yeah, you know, really see, soft yeah. – so if you can enunciate it the way you want to play it, you have to figure out a way to do that with your fingers. Yeah, you know? right. And it, it all technique it's, and it's really all the longer and longer I play, it's all about finesse as yeah. far as getting the most out of the string without it buzzing, uh, playing the right spot on the string right. is crucial to how things sound. Like uh, I'm sure you got a lot of players out there that listen. As a bass player, most songs like on a precision bass. You're right over the pickup for the majority yeah. of it. Right. Okay. Because meaning, um, like where your fingers are right where your fingers. Where you touch yeah, the I, yeah. I basically rest one finger on the edge of the pickup. That's right. kind of like my. Yeah, you put your, your yeah, thumb. That's, over, that's, yeah, that's that's okay, that's my that's my home base. Okay. Okay. So you play the majority of your stuff right there, but on a P bass, it only has the one pickup and a volume, and that's about it. You know, so yeah. you really, you can't play something that's supposed to sound like a stand up. Yeah. In that same spot, the same way. You have to move your finger to a different. Area. What you do is you slide your hand up almost to where the neck meets the body, oh, right up, yeah. way up the way up the neck, yeah. or like right where the neck meets the body, yeah. and you play up there, thinking like a stand-up player, where yeah. you're not, you're stand-up you're, meaning like a, a like a like a big bass uh, upright, fiddle that's upright boom, bass, boom, 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 boom. yeah, like okay. an upright bass. You know, they, you think on an upright bass, those strings are so long yes. that where their hand is on it. Would be way forward if you just right. like scaled it to an electric right in the guitar, of like to where it kind of right. Yeah. Well, on a on a electric, like I say, if you're playing something that's kind of stand up soundy or something like a ballad that doesn't need a big a, attack, bang, you know, yeah, on every yeah. note, then you go up in there and more you just subtle and you yeah. play softer and you just kind of pedal at them rather than really. So it's more buttery kind of than than attack. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. you take the and. The opposite, if you're playing a rock song where you don't want it to be as mushy as a, uh, yeah. like, a, say, Leon Wilkinson that played with uh, Leonard Skinner, he played everything in front of the pickup with a pick. He was almost close to the neck, really? but he was playing with a pick. And if you listen to their stuff, that bass has that kind of swampy, yeah. really woody sound. Yeah. But you can also go the opposite direction towards the back of the guitar down by the, the bridge and the string gets tighter, so the sound the sound yeah. gets tighter. Wow. So you, you just kind of flow back and forth on as to what you need. And I recommend that that players pick one guitar, and uh, something like a P bass or whatever guitar you pick, and don't go out and buy another guitar for another sound yeah, right, right away. Don't go out and get a bunch of pedals to. Uh, try and EQ your way yeah, into right. that sound or something. Figure out how to get your best version of it on the instrument itself. On one instrument and all the different ways that you can make All the different ways you can, it, yeah. and, 
and for the guys that are players out there right now, if you do go up there close to the neck, like when you're trying to get that stand-up-y sound, yeah. you go back to your tone and you roll your tone off some because right. stand-ups don't yeah. have any high end on right. it at, at all. all. They're very, body. very fundamental, boom, boom, yeah. you know. So you want a little bit of that. So you take and roll that, your tone knob back a little bit until your clickiness yeah. goes away. And then you're a lot more effective at that. Yeah. So with just those two tricks of moving your hand up and down on the string and rolling that tone on and off. Yeah. Serving the song a little more, you know. Absolutely, yeah. because you'll see guys that are, are learning to play and they play the same guitar in the same place with the same attack on it, yeah. like the same way aggressive or, you know, you got to figure a song is in a like an emotional story. So you have to, especially as a bass player, take on that emotion. If it's a sad yeah. song, you got to play it sadly. If it's an aggressive song you got to play it aggressively you know you really got to get in that mindset rather than than attacking ballads were you you a big chuck rainey fan absolutely man because he's a dallas guy what didn't he live in dallas he is you know it's funny you were talking about me getting started whenever Mm. i first was learning how to play acoustic you know because that was what my brother played and he showed me a few chords my parents are like we're going to get you some guitar lessons and i'm like okay great so they would take me to downtown Dallas to Brook Mays. Right. Yeah. Okay. Back then. Yeah. So this guitar teacher's name was Terrell Glaze, and he was probably in his 60s back then, and he was a phenomenal, like one of those guys that can do a, a chord for every, every line in the song. Every word has a different chord. Oh right. You know, okay, like yeah, all right. over it. So I'm learning from him. I could only take for about a month. It was just too far over my head. The last. That's the last lessons I ever took in my life. Little did I know, I find out 25 years later, guess who was the bass teacher next door? You're kidding me. Chuck, Chuck Rainey. Rainey was teaching right next door. He you was teaching next no door. Idea. I had no idea. But at that time, I had no interest in bass. So yeah. it, it didn't didn't matter. But in the long run, it's like, wow. Damn. You know, I was I so was close. far away from genius. From right. If I, I just switched. If I had settled <laughs> on bass earlier, I would have been in that room That's instead right. of the one next to it. But. It all works Chuck out. Rainey. All works out for the uh, for the best. Yeah. For those that don't know Chuck Rainey, I mean, he was like the like Steely Dan and you know all the number one great, session great, guy. You know, you saw his name on just about everything. Yeah, number one session guy, and he's a master reader yeah. and a master player. Or you just can't stump him. He's still around. Yeah. He's Did you ever around. see Bill Tillman when I uh, played in Dallas? Absolutely, with that with bass sax. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Bring bring me my baby. And, and Freddie <laughs> Poe was his bass player back then. Did you ever meet? I didn't Freddie? know him. No. He he gave me because I was good friends with. I took lessons from Dave Miller there. Bill Tillman's drummer, mm-hmm. who was a one o'clock uh, lab jazz drummer at North Texas and all that right. stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but I got to know Freddie Poe. He was just such a great guy, and he told me one thing, one great bit of advice when I was about nineteen or so, and I was just starting to play for a living and all that. And he said, you know, the best advice I could give you is just work. It doesn't matter. I'm not. I don't mean to get money or to get paid or anything. He goes, just work, even if it's for free, because right. everything that you do. That you, when you're working, whether it's practicing or doing a session or playing for money at a club or filling in for somebody or whatever, you're mastering your instrument more and more. And it's all about experience Absolutely. and time. time, and time like a pilot. The more hour, they, there's, there, it's not by accident that they log their hours Absolutely. Uh, when they fly a plane yes, because, because you want to know how many hours have they flown. That's right. Think of a musician as like a pilot. Absolutely. It's a cumulative. Yeah, right. And uh, every second that you spend on it is a step in the right direction, yeah. you know? And I, I was a little confused when he said, 
even if you don't get paid, because I thought, well, isn't the whole point, but this is my 19 year old self, right. isn't the whole point to get paid and, and like to, you know, value your time and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And uh, little did I know that he really knew what he was talking about. about Absolutely. Like, I, w- I was saying, discussing this with a friend a few days ago that if you're coming to Nashville to get rich or to get famous, you're coming for the wrong Save reason. Save your time. <laughs> Unless you're a singer, yeah. I, you know. But if you're a player, if you come here for those things, you'll never get in the right spot because your your focus is in the wrong area. You really got to focus on becoming a good player. Right, yeah. And one thing that I've also learned at this age is never, as a young player, don't turn your nose up at any genre. You know how when I was younger, yeah. I was like, I ain't playing country, country or, uh. or uh, show tunes. Are you ki- yeah. church music? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Or uh, uh, Mexican music or yeah. uh, big band music or 40s or whatever. Don't turn your nose up at any of them right. until you've mastered them. Then right. if you yeah. don't like it, that's fine. But trust me, you don't know you don't know what you're uh, snubbing. Yeah. You know, uh, Tommy Aldridge, the drummer. Uh, oh, yes. The, yeah. With, with uh, you know, White Snake and, and Ozzy. And, he said something interesting one time. He said, you think all of those heavy metal drummers, the best drummers in the world, do you think they all started out playing like rock and like right. Led Zeppelin? You think you think John Bonham started out playing rock? No. He goes, they learned the basics and they've all like learned jazz and that kind of stuff. There's so much jazz in like heavy, even heavy metal music and stuff. Absolutely. It's hidden in there, you know, that you can really. Absolutely is. Yeah. It, it, and any drifting over into another genre will help you in the future because you're going to run across it again yeah. in one form or another. Right. You really are. So I would embrace anything, learning yeah. anything. But back then, you know, I was so singularly focused. If it wasn't Van Halen or Boston or Foreigner, I really wasn't that interested in it. And yeah. I thought country, you know, <laughs> or uh, jazz, which I'm still, I'm still <laughs> terrible. I'm not a good jazz player. And I don't have a whole lot of love for it. Yeah. Only because I love lyrical music. Yeah. Like, I love serving a lyric, which it happens in jazz. But jazz is really like the uh, superstar player type yeah. situation. and I Musically never, driven more than lyrically. Yeah. Right. And I, I dread, I would never want to do a bass solo to this day. Really? I, I turn them down in a heartbeat because I just don't like them. It's just <laughs> not me, man, you know. I would rather serve the song. And plus, you know, bass... bass Solos are always a cliched joke, you know, know right? time to talk. It's trouble when the drums stop. What does that mean? Bass solo. Exactly. That's when everybody <laughs> starts talking. And it, it was a cliched thing, and I'm, I was never good at it, so I always gravitated. I would rather start, play a great ballad yeah. than be able to play some crazy jazz tune. Because yeah. if you look at the popularity of everything, although jazz is the hardest genre, yeah, it is the least popular genre. That's true. I, I hope yeah. I'm not speaking out of turn, but <laughs> as far as I know, yeah, it's it's down there because it's hard for people to understand. People need a consistent one, two, yeah. three, four. That like I was talking earlier about the bass lines, where you keep it simple enough that Joe Blow can go do 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 do. But you put them on a jazz song where there's an odd time or it takes off to a different key or any of that stuff, people just can't follow it. I would rather have that, strike that chord in there where they're with me on it, you know? Yeah. And maybe part of that is just my insecurity and not being a good jazz player. So maybe that's me snubbing jazz of some sort. But (laughs) but, uh, I get so much enjoyment out of the lyrical music and... uh, playing a song like the record man once you get good enough 
for whoever's, whoever's out there playing, once you get good enough to be able to play your your favorite band's song, just yeah. like them, just like the record, yeah, uh, that's a that's a milestone yeah. when you figure out. Okay, I figured that out. So then you should I know be what hungry. doing on that. Yeah, right, right. And so then that helps you to figure out other things. Yeah, you know. And then when you start going into those different genres and figuring out that stuff, you'll figure, hey, a lot of that progression that they're using in that 40s big bands yeah. ballad is the same thing that they're using in a Garth Brooks ballad. Yeah, you know, it's, it's all very similar, yeah. but it can be disguised. I, I can't remember if I think it was John Bonham and I'm not I don't I may be talking out of turn, but they said, yeah. He was using a lot of cross-genre styles yeah, and right. just blowing the rock 2-4 guys away. Yeah, you know, right. the boom, jack, boom, jack. Yeah, right. He was doing all that other crazy stuff that he had gleaned from from jazz or, uh, you know, uh, samba music or whatever. All this yeah, outside you, stuff. What's the one where that has the samba figure in there where the whistle blows? Oh, yeah, that's... How else do you think he Fool in the rain. Fool in the rain. Let yeah, any other heavy metal drummer play that, you know? And exactly, a and a lot of his most uh, iconic stuff you, is a hi hat piece from this genre with yeah. a kick drum from that genre yeah, and right, a snare yeah. drum from this genre, and it comes out as something completely unique. Yeah. And everybody's like, "How did you come up oh, with that?" Yeah, and he's like, "Well, I stole it from yeah. that guy and that guy and the even, other guy." Even Jeff Beccaro stole the Rosanna shuffle from John Bonham. He goes, yes. "I wanted to play that beat that he was doing, like was it Fool in the Rain or whatever." Yeah. And he goes, "I wanted to do that." And right. then add the Bo, Bo Diddley, the boom, yeah, that boom, boom, Rosanna boom, type thing, boom, yeah, boom, boom, yeah, and he, so he just put those two together, and that's exactly what he did, and what made him so magnificent to this yeah. end. He's one of those guys, and I would put uh, Benny Caliuta mm -hmm. in the same thing, where really drummers in general, I'd say eighty percent of the time they're all playing the exact same thing, like it doesn't matter if it's you mm -hmm. or one of those guys or whoever. If you're going to play that song, you got to play the exact same thing that that you would play they're they're playing the exact same thing but there's something about those two guys in particular yeah that and i can't even put my finger on it because it is so uh in it's on another level yeah. something in your psyche that i can be listening there'll be a song on the radio i have no idea they played on like uh you know because vinnie is a rock jazzer guy but yeah, he right. played and i'd say probably 15 years ago there's all of these Faith Hill country songs on the radio, and I'm listening to them going, I don't know what it is about this song, but I freaking love yeah, it. something about it. Love it. And, and it you go back and look through the lineup, it's him. <laughs> yeah. It's him. And there's just something that he does and something that Picaro does with the same exact ingredients yeah. in the same exact place that makes it different somehow. Yeah. You know? That's true. And that's what you got to shoot for. You don't shoot to be Benny Caliuta, or yeah. you got to find your spot. To, yeah. to do what you make. You know what's interesting about the two of those is you just said that, and it just dawned on me. I've heard stories of both of those drummers and just singly those guys and no nobody else. Those guys that when they would do a take in the studio and someone, a producer, somebody would say, "Hey, can we run that again?" Or can we? And both of those same drummers at different times had said, "No, that's I've got it the way I want it. That's exactly I don't want to do it again." Right. Well, uh, when you're at that level and such a master of your uh, instrument, instrument yeah. and after having that 
backlog of all of those mm-hmm. hits, records, and everything. You know when it's right. You know yeah. your best performance. Yeah. And if you do it the first time and everybody else doesn't, yeah. you got to say, yeah. that was, that's the one. Yeah. Keep that yeah. one. Keep that one and let everybody else right. dub, because, overdub their part. Yeah. Because trust me, if you're yeah. in a session, you know as well as anybody, if you're in a recording session, you know all your secrets. Yeah. Like you're playing along. If you make a little bitty flub, nobody else will catch it, but you mm-hmm. know it. Yeah, it's so how you recover from it, and, and how you, you recover from it. And if you're an honest guy, you, at the end of it, you go, "I want to go back and fix that." You know, yeah. some people don't. Some people yeah. they're like, "Well, if they didn't notice it, I'll let it go." But the real guys are like, "I want to go back and fix that." So you know What's when your when your best take is there. Now you have to be open to the producer saying, "Yeah, could we try it like this?" Right. But if yeah. if it, if this is definitely going to be the part, yeah, then what you hired, what they hired you for. Mm-hmm. It's what you do, yeah. your thing. And with Jeff or Vinny or somebody like that, they know when they're they saying, do their I thing. I just gave you what you hired me for. So That's right. I just yeah. gave you exactly. They're like, trust me. Yeah. Like right now, you may think that it's not it, but when it comes to mix time and the, the mastering, you're going to go, Yeah. he was right. Um, so I have heard uh, people say, I think it was, was it um, Steve Gadd that said something like, make one mistake, it's a mistake. Do it twice, it's a part. <laughs> You're exactly like you're exactly it's right, like and the, and the best can do yeah. that, and they they don't get flustered whenever yeah. one of them happens. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys, I was guilty of it too early on doing sessions that we'd all be playing along, and if I messed up, I'd just stop. You know, well you're supposed to just keep just going, keep, on plowing, yeah. keep right. going, and then confess at the end. I say yeah. I need to go back and do that, but if you just stop, you blow the whole take for everybody. You right? blow it. The, actually, the guys in Nashville are professional enough to just keep going without you, but. Yeah. Right. It does something to their psyche. You know, it'd be mm-hmm. like somebody throwing you a curveball while yeah. you're trying to concentrate. So if you hit a bad note, you just keep going, and then you yeah. go back at the end, unless it's so blatant that you do take everybody off the, off the tracks with yeah. you, you know. But uh, definitely. Imagine back in the days when it was just like everybody in the same room with just a couple of mics, and right. if you blew it, you, you, you just blew do it, it again. I mean, do it again. Do the whole, and that was back when they were, like, recording, like, on di- like on vinyl, like, Hard di- like oh, recording yeah, like the, straight from a needle. Right, you right. Know, you had, if you were lucky enough, you had two machines going in case one messed right, up or something. Right, right, yeah. You had a redundant one. Yeah. And have to go back. And, well, that could be wonderful and that could be terrible, depending on if the song grew or diminished yeah. after doing it so many times. Yeah. You right, know, uh, Rush talks about those guys, those long, drawn-out, like 2112 and all mm-hmm. those things, those 10-minute songs – they would play them beginning to end, and if they messed up, they would stop and go seven minutes back, start the beginning start again, again yeah. until they could get all the way through it. There wasn't any punch-ins mm-hmm. and any of that kind of stuff. Wow. And you're talking about learning your material, and after doing it that many times, the material morphs. You know, If you yeah. play it a bunch of times, and all of a sudden they go, yeah. you know, I was thinking maybe we should. So then you start yeah. recording it that way from then on, yeah. and eventually they would get all the way to the end, and it wow. was done, but... I couldn't imagine, especially if you're writing it. It's one thing if you listen to it and you wrote some notes on it or something, but to go, here's, we're going to do this loud part, then we're going to get real quiet, (laughs) then the guitar's going to swell up, and then he's going to hit his drums real crazy, and then we're going to go to a completely different part, you know, and expect me and you and some other guy to get it all at the same time and everything. But by the time it was done, look at it. I think the three of those guys just had a, they had a zen, they had a, uh, communication with each other musically and verbally that they just knew their language you know they knew what to they do. really did and that yeah. just comes from uh being playing together so much 
you yeah. know, and Neil Peart being such a good lyric writer. Yeah. He wrote right. all, all yeah. the lyrics for everything that you yeah. can't write a one, four, five song to those lyrics. You, it's got to yeah. be complicated because yeah. the lyrics are complicated. He was big, read books all the time and wrote books. Very, and very big, knowledgeable, very uh, bookworm, yeah. studious, yeah. and wrote with big words, man. Yeah. I mean, not little stuff. He was yeah. big concepts. He didn't do anything small. I mean, no. he just like no. attacked everything with like this, like a warrior. Right. Big know? words and big concepts. You know, who writes a song about trees fighting with yeah. each other in the and forest. a lot of drums a hell of a lot of drums <laughs> absolutely and uh they were lucky enough to get to indulge all of their yeah what if we did this what if we yeah, did that and there was yeah. nobody to say no you can't do that now you got to have this album finished in a week <laughs> right and that'll never make it on the radio well those are the exactly yeah. the things that made it on the radio back right, then yeah. you know was the unusual yeah craziness stuff. like i think i heard that when bohemian rhapsody was first pitched i mean well you saw the movie right mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. First pitch, they were like, "This how long this song is? This It'll is never opera. It's like, no. Yeah. But it was like one of the most famous things. It really was. And back then, goes back to our uh, video less the age of no video. If you're in your room with your headphones on listening to that, the yeah. picture that you picture in your mind of not only the the music part of it, but the whole concept of the song and yeah, everything, right. you know, you just have this imagination just runs wild with it where now they tell you exactly what to think because there's a video there's a video you know you watch the video it's like oh i guess i'm supposed to think about that right now you know and and back in the 70s when you heard music on the radio you didn't in a lot of times you didn't even know what the band looked like until you bought their album or something and maybe there was a picture on the back or something oh my gosh yeah so (laughs) much so much time uh when you were in your room trying to figure out those parts if you weren't Actually, holding your instrument in your hand, you were staring at the liner notes and those things and looking at the album cover and just fantasizing about yeah, the whole, right. you know, the whole. Which says something about the whole vinyl culture and like. Right. You're actually, it's a thing that you hold in your hand and you're listening to it while you're holding this. Oh, yeah, it's thing tactile. And, and uh, especially for somebody who's really not into that vinyl, go, uh, go get the Kiss Alive 2 record yeah right you know and uh listen to the record while you're looking at the liner notes and so you're listening to it and you're looking at all the blood and the gore and the rock and roll and the fire and everything it's just it paints such a vivid thing it's just yeah it makes it seem so much more inaccessible yeah you know that's one thing kiss did really good is visual they they were so visual i mean it had to they just, from the get-go, they were like, let's paint our faces and we're going to get out there and have flames and blood and all this stuff. We're right. Just, it's not about the music. It is, right. but, it, but it's, it's more about... simplistic uh, music. Yeah. It's uh, theatrical. Theatrical stuff. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my best friend on the planet, Jared Decker, that plays, he plays keyboards for Travis Tritt to this day, has for decades. He's the biggest Kiss fan on the planet. And I always go, what was it? Because he was born in 1972. So... 1978 is where Kiss really kind of exploded. Yeah, really huge. So he was six or eight years old, and I said, what? And to this day, he has an entire room with probably $100,000 worth of Kiss pinballs and, you know, everything you can possibly get. I said, what was it? He said, they were the bridge between rock and roll and comic books. Oh, right. Think about that. Okay, so that's why they took that whole— That's what appealed to him is because of the whole mystique of the comic book, the unknown, the whole— demon yeah. you know the whole thing plus the rock and roll part of it and it got him at that age and to this day wow uh still yeah. you know but like the uh, kiss alive record 
was not live at all. No, no I read Nothing. that. No, not live at all. I read that, I was least. appalled. I was like, what do you mean? It's yeah, yeah, a lot of those live records, they cut them in the studio. Even the Peter Frampton comes alive was a lot of parts of it, yeah. and stuff. Parts of it, yeah. They'll get the basics that they can live, and then if they, back then, not a lot of editing and yeah. stuff. So if they couldn't overcome it, they would just do it in the studio and add the crowd noise in. Yeah. But if you're looking at that album cover and you're listening, it's the immersive experience where it sounds live, it feels live, you yeah. feel like you're there. So that's really what Kiss was trying to get across, you know, is that. Yeah, to me, that's even better than a video because you could, there's so many things could go through your mind when you're reading all that stuff and looking at it. You, it's almost like watching yeah, a different you, you video. Yeah, you paint your time. own picture. And, yeah. you know, because if, if you got a video, a lot of the references and a lot of the visuals in there really don't pertain to your life. As yeah, far somebody as else decided they that. They don't resonate just, with yeah. you. Where if you're if you're making the the pictures in your own head, you're painting your own picture of it. Mine's yeah. different than yours. Your your experience of it is different than mine. You know, so yeah. that I thought that was the beauty of it back then. And I wouldn't want to be a guy learning now that doesn't have the knowledge of. Uh, that doesn't exercise that ear muscle. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. because you can go on TikTok and there's 10,000 guitar players that can blow your mind in a minute. I think a, yeah. a TikTok video is only, what, 60 seconds, 90 yeah, seconds, whatever. Right. They do the craziest stuff. And you can learn that craziest stuff, but you would behoove yourself a lot better to get the CD. And, I mean, if you want to play the crazy stuff, you may need some help on it. But just general yeah. music and don't go to the video, don't go to a live thing and watch them play it. Figure it out on your own. Yeah. Right. If you once you figure it out on your own, if you want to go and check yourself against them and watch it, it may be like my friend Ron that I was talking about earlier, where you go, I can make it sound exactly the same and not play even remotely the same yeah. position, the same place, same strings, same everything, but it all comes out the same. Yeah. But that's my interpretation of it. It's like an actor reading the same line in a movie, and he's putting his, you know, or Ab- her. Absolutely. Uh, Abs- what they, they interpret it as. You know? Absolutely. Your thing. Yeah. And as a musician, if you're going to have a, a lasting career, you may not be the greatest. You may not be the fastest or the whatever, yeah. but you have your thing. And yeah. your thing is a commodity. Right. And a... I'd say 50% playing and 50% personality, who right, you are, yeah. and integrity. And being in a band, um, we always talk about this as, you know, to be just a good hang, a good, you know, don't be that guy it, on the it bus really that, is more, that everybody— It really is more important than yeah. just about anything. Yeah, right. Honestly, because there's two kinds of guys that, you know, when you're in Nashville and you're talking with a bunch of players and somebody's names come up, these are your two descriptions. If somebody says— and you know Keach, and people say, "God, I love that guy. Great player." That's what you want. Yeah, right. What you don't want is they say somebody says, "Man, you know Keach," and they go, "Man, he's a phenomenal player." But, but you don't want the butt. You don't want the butt. Don't be a butt. <laughs> you don't want right. Don't be a butt, and don't have a butt to your uh, yeah. personality because people love to dish the dirt. And they're not going to tell your best story. They're going to tell your worst story. Right. Yeah. So in every single situation. Uh, conduct yourself with integrity and uh, dignity to where you just never know who's listening. You may go play down at a somebody's front porch at noon on a Sunday with three or four guys. You have no idea who they are. And if you don't put in your time and go down there, like you're playing Bridgestone arena and know your stuff, you may get there 
and play your thing and fall on your face and then come find out, oh, that guy? Yeah, that was the drummer for Garth. <laughs> and that, that guitar player over there, yeah, he plays for Keith Urban and that guy. You just never know. You never know. Because it's one thing to see somebody on stage, you can go, that's a rock star. But when you see them in real life, mm-hmm. in their shorts and their T-shirts or whatever, you can't really gauge. Yeah. And if you're it's, on your good game and, and you're hanging out on that porch and you just play your butt off and you're nice and you hang out, that one day those guys may say, hey, you know, uh, we're looking for a bass player. Um, and I remember this guy that I met. He was really good. Absolutely. And he did his homework yeah. and he was pleasant. Yeah. And those are, like I was saying, those are the guys that can pull you over to the other side of the fence. Yeah. Right. Uh, that uh, There's a guy named Herb Shuker in town you know Herb I don't know if I do he's a drummer he's actually a, a Dallas guy as well and he played for Randy Travis and uh, Tracy Lawrence and you name it just a million different people he's one of those guys that it can go from gig to gig to gig to gig to gig I know it, I've met him I have, you, you I have, have to have met yes. him out you absolutely have he's a master of uh, networking around here but anyway he was I did a gig with him somewhere and he was impressed that I did my homework he didn't tell me that mm-hmm. But I went in there like I was auditioning for Garth Brooks. I mean, I knew my material. I uh, didn't need charts, you know. I uh, you probably looked good too. You, you I know, looked good. I was personable. Too. I went. Dressed I, to impress. I shook hands with everybody that I was playing with, and I said, "I'm so, th- so thankful to be playing with you guys. Yeah. I'm honored to be playing with you, and I'm going to do my best." And he became fond of me during that, yeah. and he's the one that pulled me over the fence. Really? He said, uh, "Well." He first he said, you know, uh, you should talk to Keith Horn, who's another bass player Great in town. Bass. He played with us for a little while. There you go. Yeah, yeah that's right. Absolutely, phenomenal player oh, and a man. sweetheart of a guy. Yeah. See, that's one of the guys. Where you go? Yeah. go. I love that Great guy. guy. Man, good hang. Love yeah. that guy. Great player. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. instead of the opposite. Right. And uh, he said, you should talk to Keith. You know, Keith's playing with Tanya, and he's kind of in and out of there a lot. So, go up and you know, tell him I sent you over. So I talked to Keith, and Keith's like. Well, oddly enough, I'm fixing to leave Tanya, so I'll put your name in. So I went and played with her for about three or four months. It didn't, maybe a total of about six gigs, maybe. I was so green. First big one after coming to town from being a club six nights a week player. So nervous about it. And uh, it was a really strange experience that I was so keyed up about it. And they were all a bunch of pros. And Tanya's kind of a the old pro and she's notorious yeah. for being a little you know f- flighty i guess you yeah, call okay, it or whatever yeah. and uh i never felt the return from her like i should feel yeah. confident in what i'm doing so i always felt yeah. like i was waiting every day to get fired get fired get fired <laughs> get fired get fired and uh so i played with her like that and like i say the gigs were so far apart that i figured there would just be one of them i just wouldn't get asked back to yeah so in the meantime but i did go in there prepared, professional, Mm -hmm. integrity, uh, dignity. Showed uh, up on time. Absolutely willing to do anything for the team. And so while I was waiting in between some of those gigs, the same guy, Herb, says, uh, Pam Tillis is looking for somebody. And he would go out and sub with Pam every now and then. So he put my name in the hat. And I got in there and got the gig. And that was the first one where I really thought – yeah. I may, I may, I don't you say, I won't say way. made it, yeah. but I, I felt that was the first time that I was in the, in the club. Yeah. And Pam know? Tillis is such a sweetheart. She's a queen. Sweetheart. And Man, I, I don't think any, just, she yeah. is so, I don't think anybody realizes 
she's not just a country singer. She is so eclectic. Mm-hmm. She has her finger on the pulse of Americana and Celtic, and she's huh. just a super artistic. One of those uh, people you go, might be a little bit crazy, but look, crazy in a good way. But look way. what she's been around all her life. Yeah, you know? crazy talented. The family. and Yeah. And I, I felt like I, that was the first time I thought, well, okay, I'm in the club. I've got two under my belt. And after you get the first one, it's a lot easier to get the second one. Right, yeah. Because you actually have a name that you can yeah. use to get in the door. you got a reference. You know, once you get oh, in the door, though. Tanya. Yeah, once you get in the door, though, you have to maintain that. That's right, yeah. Because if you get fired from a gig, mm-hmm. especially in a bad situation like a drunk on stage yeah, or a didn't right. show up or anything, that follows you That's a scar from on now on. Yeah. It follows you 20 years later. You know? So i got to ask you a technical question, shifting gears. When you play bass, are, now I notice that a lot of bass players are back kind of by the drummer. Do you look at the, do you look at the kick drum, the, the, the foot pedal, or are you just a listen? I'm a listen person? guy. Because yeah. you, you know what I mean. Like some bass players are back Absolutely. there. Absolutely. They can actually be with an eye shot of the kick drum. I do like, I do like being on the hi-hat side yeah. in the back, only because that's the most line of sight. Because yeah. bass player and drummer do a lot of communicating, yeah. you know, a lot of looking at each other, you know. Yeah. And if you are having a night where you really can't hear so well, you do have the opportunity to look over to and look see up, yeah. what's happening. But uh, realistically, for me, now I'm I'm on in-ears just like you are. Where mm-hmm. we have ear mixes, there's really not any yeah. outside noise going on there. And the kick drum is 50% of my tone. Right. It's the loudest thing in my ear mix by far. Way yeah. louder than me. Way, way louder than me. Because I want to lock in with it. Yeah. And... So the way the kick drum sounds affects the way I EQ my guitar because I want it to be one one thing. Yeah. When we right. hit together, yes. I want it to exactly. be one yeah. instrument, not yeah. like your kick drum and my bass. Yeah. Well, in order to do that, that means if there's all of this low end in my guitar and there's all of this low end in your kick drum, one of us has got to make a sacrifice. Right, yeah. Or it's going to be too much in that one particular frequency. So I will... Oh. EQ my guitar with that kick drum in my ear that loud and use the kick drum as part of the tone of my guitar. Yeah, so it's all sort of one thing. Kind absolutely, of, yeah. absolutely. Well, I've never heard it quite put that way, but that's very interesting. It really is. That's why uh, I've played with drummers before when we would hire them and bring them in, and they would, on some songs, they would hit the kick hard. Mm-hmm. Say if it was 1 to 10 as to how hard you're going to hit the kick drum, they would hit it 5 five 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 and then another part of the song seven seven another part would be one or two and i'd say you're 50 percent of my tone so every time that you change the volume of Mm -hmm. your kick it changes the sound of the drum too because i mean if you're stabbing into that kick drum it's bang bang you know Mm -hmm. but if you're just barely hitting this foom it has that foom to it it doesn't have the attack on the front well if that is inconsistent then my mind is going a million miles an hour trying to compensate my tone yeah, right. to match one or the other so i'm like if so it's a song it to be the same yeah right as consistent velocity. as you can be now yeah. i'm not saying if you go into a ballad don't go in there and mm-hmm. stomp it like you're playing white snake yeah i'm saying that there's a time and a place for that but within the song yeah you've got to play your kick drum as uh uh what am I talking about? Dynamically. Yeah, right. And that should be in rehearsal. That should be probably done in the beginning so you know 
what to play the same as the drummer and they can match it. You well, know, yeah, we, every time. we actually should be in agreement as to what the song's yeah, doing at that right. point. You know, yeah. whether we're hitting hard or whether we're playing it soft or whether we're, yeah. we should be in perfect lockstep. Yeah. Understand. So what I try to do, my philosophy is, is it, and, and I've only come up on this kind of recently when I really started doing this podcast and started talking to other players and how they feel and with click and things like that. And uh, one of the things that I've learned that makes the best groove possible the best recipe is for when the kick drum and the bass drum hit right on the one like on the click like right on it oh yeah and the snare the backbeat is just that much too far back just back mm -hmm. a little lazy i love and that and then and that's kind of hard to do because what keeps you from making the next kick drum hit lazy you right. know or back you know because that's got to be right on but the right. snare sort of be just a little and i don't mean like 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 far behind like way behind you yeah, mean just, just a little like a wet fish but but right. I mean, just like a little, a feel. little back, so then everybody, you don't have that feel of urgency. Right. It's sort of and like, we should be going faster, you know. Well, that does, that comes with uh, experience. Yeah, right. The longer and the longer and the longer you play, you'll figure out that there's some songs and some drummers that you can set a click, and this drummer plays it, and you feel like you're pushing the bus. Yeah, right. And the, the other drummer plays the exact same uh, metronome meter. Yeah, right. But it feels like feels you're kind of rolling like with yeah, the bus, right, you know? Yeah. It's on that front edge. Yeah. But, yes, uh, we play – I love – I don't listen to click because yeah. I find it sterile myself. You just look at the drummer who's listening to click. That's Absolutely. The drummer stays on the yeah. click, and I play around him because, like you're saying, yeah. the same thing is true for a bass player. There's all of these shades. There's dead on hitting with the kick drum mm -hmm. and the snare, and then there's a shade ahead if you want to – yeah. feel like you're pushing a little bit yeah. and there's shades behind my favorite is a little bit relaxed yeah. that relaxed lope thing yeah right. right but yeah. you still say it's the same tempo you're not slowing down whatsoever and that comes in from the experience in the emotional aspect like i was talking yeah. to you you know if you're playing a song that's about cruising down the highway in california yeah it's gonna be a little laid back regardless right, yeah. of what tempo it is it's gonna have that relaxed emotion to it yeah right. where if you're playing a song that's at the exact same tempo and you're talking about driving over to beat up your <laughs> girlfriend's <laughs> other boyfriend or something it's got yeah. some some it's urgency some and, to it <laughs> it's got some urgency and some push on it you yeah, know, some right. aggressiveness to yeah. it you know and they, even though nobody's consciously thinking them and doing that on purpose it just comes natural with the experience of knowing and playing so many tens of thousands of hours that yeah you know that you really quit thinking about stuff like that as far as this should be behind this should be up you just look at every song as an yeah. emotion emotional thing you know and it naturally comes that way right so what was your favorite travis tritt song to play when you guys when you were with tritt well with travis uh, it i couldn't have landed in a better spot because i was a southern rocker yeah I'm a rocker at heart, you know. I play you were country. the perfect bass player for him, right? I really was, and it was such a, f a weird thing for me to get in there, and I was so just floored because you're talking about a singer, singer, and I'm a yeah. singer too, so I sang harmony yeah. with him on everything. Uh, I loved the big ballads, man. Yeah, really? The big ballads for him, and it was just him and I belting it out, singing, yeah. You know, uh, anymore, or yeah. I liked uh, – uh, luckily, speaking of bass players, there's a guy named Mike Brignardello. Yeah, is, I've a, had him on the podcast before. There yeah. you go. Uh -huh. uh, he's a session ace. Right. I've, I stole a lot of stuff from him. Between him and Michael Rhodes, that's pretty much my entire career yeah. of, of stealing things. Yeah. But uh, 
back then Travis would give him the leeway to he would play the the intro figures on a lot of stuff like it would be a yeah. bass lick like uh between an old memory and me or something yeah. like that it mm-hmm. starts off with a bass lick not a wow. not a guitar section or something so uh that was great for me playing bass yeah. you know and great to get to play those emotional songs with Travis and sing them with him every night to yeah. have him singing in your ear oh wow. my god man it's incredible and I was in heaven. You were 13 years, is that right? Uh, that was, 12. 12 years? I started with him at the the very end of 99, mm-hmm. and I left at the beginning of 2012. Wow. Yeah. Dang. And, uh, man, some of the best times of my life. Yeah. That's what, the one where I really grew up as a player. Yeah. Where the first couple, like Pam Tillis, you felt like you're in the club, finally. Right, yeah. You know? But you get a big gig like that to where you can really – blossom and get some attention and come in here have been doing some huge arenas and stuff yes that was a big deal it it was wonderful it really was and you kind of come into your own uh, confidence wise yeah and you figure out that i will never be michael rhodes and i will never be mike brigner dello but you're scotty simpson (laughs) exactly and in some ways there's probably certain areas that i'm better than those guys in in some granted very minute (laughs) microscopic genre spot that i actually have an advantage on them in some one way or another yeah but uh those guys are just so good at going in and playing by emotion sad song comes off sad and perfect fast song aggressive song comes off aggressive and perfect they do it all day every day you know and so man as a bass player if you're a an up-and-coming country ish player or really a player in of any standards yeah go on uh it's called allmusic.com yeah and put in michael rhodes right and go to discography because uh all music is a site that gives you liner notes it'll give you any information that you want on any album i can put in i could put in a lone star album it would tell me when it was made when it was produced who was the producer who was the producer what studio and and it will list every player Wow. That was on that session. I mean, top to bottom. Go in and, and look up Michael Rhodes' uh, discography. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of songs in, yeah. in every genre. Hits, hits, so many hits that yeah. he, w- he doesn't even list he hits. He doesn't remember all he the He doesn't even list <laughs> hits anymore. He doesn't even talk about, boy, I loved that song that I played on that won a Grammy or whatever. Yeah, right. He doesn't have to because his, his catalog is so gigantic. And right now... Yeah. I don't know if he still is, but for the last several years, he's been out with Joe Bonamassa. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my so God. doing a road gig, you know. Yeah. But uh, definitely one of my icons. Brigner Dello, too, especially because I, I didn't know Michael. I know him a little bit, but not as well as I know Mike. Uh, yeah. Brigner Dello. Yeah. And Brigner Dello was the first guy that you learn all the records and everything mm-hmm. that they played on them, and you kind of have them on this pedestal. Yeah. And then a situation comes where you finally meet them. Yeah. And they're sweet, sweet, just the most humble person, kind and accommodating and helpful. Like, how could all those great bases come from that person? You know? Exactly, and that's that's true of anybody in Nashville. Uh, looks are deceiving. Yeah, you'll see some little mousy guy that you think he couldn't even hold a guitar, yeah. and that's like, yeah, that's uh, you know, you know like uh, JT Cornfloss yeah. or somebody <laughs> like that's just played on everything, but you would never yeah. guess it to look at him. You just wouldn't 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 get wow. it. But so, uh, those kind of guys are, when you meet your heroes and they're so sweet and accommodating yeah. and 
I'll never forget when I was playing with Travis, we did a thing at uh, Campbell Air Force Base or Fort Campbell yeah. in Kentucky, about an hour away. So he wants me, he's only one guest on with a bunch of guests on there. Mm-hmm. So they send me into the rehearsals to get the band up to speed before in Nashville. We did them in yeah. like Soundcheck or someplace. So I go in for the four songs or whatever. Well, I walk in there, it's the A team. It's oh, wow. Eddie Bears, oh my it's God. Uh, Michael Rhodes, it's Brent Mason, <laughs> it's uh, like John Hobbs or somebody on piano, and <laughs> like, I walk in and my chin hit the floor automatically. Like, uh, okay, the way the song goes yeah. is, as if you guys didn't already know. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, so, of course, my heart was in my throat, you know, yeah. to rehearse with these guys. And they could not have been any nicer or anything. Wow. And at the end of it, uh, I was talking with Michael some. And uh, Michael Rhodes, or yeah, Michael Rhodes, Michael Rhodes, I should say, at the end of it. And I said, Man, I just love everything you do. I said, He said, Well, how long have you been here? And I said, Well, I've been here about five, six years. I said, "Uh, I came up here to play with you guys. And he put his hand on my arm and he said, You are, yeah, yeah, that's wow. And uh, that how confirming that must have been, yeah. Oh man, wow, just tears, you know. And then he hugged me because I did tear up. I was like, Oh my gosh. Uh, you are i made it you know i made it and it was so uh reassuring yeah you know and uh really once you get uh, a pat on the back like that it makes you dig in even harder sure absolutely way yeah. harder and to appreciate the, the the road that's behind you a little bit more you know absolutely well scotty thank you so much for coming down and talking to me man and uh Hopefully we'll see you out on the road uh, soon with the Oak Ridge Boys. I love you, buddy. Thanks for having me. See you guys.